For the past group of weeks, we've been going through the book of Romans, a segment at a time, and uh, today we're in the second half of Romans chapter 3. And one of the things that you're going to notice as we look at this segment of Scripture, at least one of the things that it seems to invite us to ask is this idea of, or this question, does God have something against me? Does God have something against me? And I imagine that that's the type of thing that that many of us have wondered during different seasons. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. I actually think that this is a, a question that many people in the world wrestle with on a pretty regular basis. Does God have something against me? If you would, take your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 3. We're going to pick up at verse 21. And we're going to look down to verse 31, which is the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 3, starting with verse 21, and this is what it states. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what comes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to read it together today and to be able to meditate on the contents that we can see in this portion of Scripture. And Lord, we pray that now as we take a look at what you've revealed to us in this second half of Romans chapter 3, that you'd help us to wrestle with this idea of whether or not you have something against us. And Lord, these are, this is the type of thing that's, that's addressed here when we look at this portion of Scripture, but Lord, we're also shown so much more than that. You resolve that question when we look at this chapter. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd prepare our hearts and prepare our minds now to be able to receive what you have for us here. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Does anyone enjoy conflict? I say that jokingly because I think very few people enjoy enjoy conflict, although I have met a few people in my life that seem to enjoy conflict. But conflict is one of the more unpleasant realities of life. Conflict isn't the type of thing that most of us tend to gravitate toward. Uh, Some people we know excel at creating conflict, and others tend to walk into conflict without a whole lot of premeditation. But in both contexts, conflict can be painful and it can be regretful, particularly depending on how it plays out. 
Now, sometimes in life we can find that we're in the midst of conflict with others, and we aren't even sure why. Have you ever had an experience like that where you discover you're, you're having conflict with somebody, but you can't remember why that's the case, or you, you never picked up on why that might even be possible. But all of a sudden, it seems like maybe they've disappeared from our life. They used to call, and now they don't. They used to try together, and now, conveniently, they're never around. And in the end, we probably find ourselves asking in moments like that, did I do something or did I say something to offend that person? And maybe, you know, in those contexts, we're even wondering, you know, are we still friends? Like, how do I even define this kind of relationship? And I bring that up to set up what we're talking about today, because have you ever wondered if something like this was taking place in your relationship with God? Like this idea of this unresolved conflict. You know, maybe you're somebody that's tried to spend your life avoiding God, but now you're becoming more conscious of His presence, and you're curious about what He thinks about you. I was talking to somebody just recently who admitted to me, he said, you know, I have spent the majority of my adult life running from God, and now he's wrestling with what does it look like to run toward God. Uh, Maybe you're somebody that's been walking with God for a while. But lately, you've been experiencing trials or difficulties or things of that nature that kind of feel like they're out of the norm. And so you're maybe asking questions like, is God angry with me? You know, did I do something that is an offense to Him? Is He angry with me? And uh, maybe this has come into my life because He's angry with me? You know, does He want to have anything to do with me? Does He have something against me uh, that needs to be dealt with? Um, and, and brought out into the open? These are natural questions that I think we as people tend to ask. And I think that this is a question that's answered for us when we look at this portion of Scripture from Romans 3. When you look at verses 21 to 31, it, it addresses this kind of concept. And this Scripture makes it clear that if not for the direct intervention of Jesus Christ, God most certainly would have something against us. But God the Father sent God the Son into this world to remedy this problem for us. Yet for this problem to be remedied in our individual lives, we need to understand the nature of the problem to begin with. So why would God have something against us? Why would that even be the case? And what grave concern was Jesus sent into this world to remedy? Well, when you look at the portion of Scripture that we're looking at today, one of the things that it makes clear to us is that we've fallen short of God's standard. We've fallen short of His standard. Let me reread verse 21 and a couple verses after that. But there it says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, previously in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul made it clear that man's attempts to justify himself will always fall short. Any attempt that man makes to justify himself is going to fall short, meaning the Gentile nations are not going to be justified by their efforts because Scripture made it clear that they weren't even seeking God and the Jewish people weren't going to be justified by their efforts. They, many thought that they could be justified by keeping the regulations or the letter of the law of Moses, but they could never keep it perfectly. So that wasn't going to work on their part as well. The law made them aware of sin. The law makes us aware of sin. 
But we aren't going to obtain a right standing before God by keeping it because we violated it. And violating even one part, Scripture reveals, it it makes us guilty of violating the whole thing. It rises and stands together. Yet in the midst of this rebellion, you know, this state that mankind has been in, this rebellious heart, this rebellious attitude, just this direct rebellion against God, we have the Old Testament Scriptures that are referred to here by the Apostle Paul as the Law and the Prophets. So when you look through the Old Testament, you see the the law, you see the poetry, you see the prophecy, and oftentimes people would refer to it as just simply the law and the prophets. So you have the Apostle Paul here referring to the Old Old Testament Scriptures as the law and the prophets, and when you look through the law and the prophets, those portions of Scripture made known that a day was going to come when God would make people righteous. He would make people righteous. He would make people holy in His sight. And prophetically, pointing toward the future, those portions of Scripture spoke of the day when the righteousness of God would be granted to all who place their trust in Jesus Christ. And you have this spoken of directly, you have this foreshadowed. It's addressed in multiple places all throughout the Old Testament. Let me show you a couple portions of Scripture that bring it up. In Genesis fifteen six, it says, "...and he believed the Lord, and he credited it to him." as righteousness. That's speaking of Abraham. Abraham believed the Lord. By the way, Abraham was also called the friend of God. And why was he called the friend of God? Because he believed in him. That would be a nice friendship to have, would it not? That's a friendship we do have as we trust in Jesus Christ. And Abraham was called the friend of God. And Scripture tells us again, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So you can see in the very first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis that that's spoken of there, that this trust in the Lord results in righteousness that the Lord supplies. Habakkuk 2.4 says this, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but, and then it makes the contrast, and it says, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So again, in the Old Covenant, you have this continual pointing to this idea that by faith, you know, by grace through faith that the Lord supplies, righteousness can be obtained. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are made righteous in the eyes of God. But for a person to first trust in Jesus, they need to first understand their need for Him. And that need is clarified in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Now, when you're reading through the Scripture, there's obviously a lot of content in the Scripture to commit to memory. But Romans 3.23 is one of those portions of Scripture that I think is very useful to have in, the, in, in our mind and in our understanding, whether we're sharing the gospel with somebody else or whether we're just meditating on the truth of the gospel uh, for our own edification. But in that passage, in Romans 3.23, we're told, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, if the scripture, if that was the only scripture we knew, that would be a little sad because it doesn't, you know, we're not finishing the statement But it sets the baseline for what we need to be concerned about. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that means none of us are an exception to that declaration. Now, there are a few people I know in my life that think they are exceptions to that declaration. And, um, you know, I was was actually at a wedding a while ago. This was about uh, like two weeks before... I uh, started pastoring my first church, and I was sitting at the wedding. Uh, I had just gotten married myself, and uh, 
I was sitting there at the wedding a couple weeks after my wedding, and I was placed next to an older woman that I had never met before, and she found out that I was a pastor, and so we were talking. And then she made the offhanded comment, and she said, well, you know what, we're all sinners. And she said, I mean, and she got real like careful. She's like, I mean, not, most of us are, she said, most of us. Now, I didn't mean, pastor, to imply that you were a sinner. That's what she said to me, and I was like, what? Did I like give off this vibe that I don't know that I'm a sinner? Everyone that knows me well knows that I'm a sinner. Even my wife of two weeks can confirm to you that I am a sinner. And when you look at what this portion of Scripture says, it reminds us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are exceptions to that declaration. Not a single one of us. I have fallen short of God's standard of holiness. You have fallen short of God's standard of holiness. In the eyes of God, if everything was left just like that, we would stand in the eyes of God, unrighteous and condemned forever. And he would have been perfectly correct in making that declaration about us. I don't know if you happen to, if, I don't know if you read the news or not. Sometimes I think reading the news is just an absolute waste of time because how often when you read the news do you read good news, right? It's like the minority of anything that you read. But I was reading in the news the other day about a man who was running for political office in the state of Nevada who has spent his entire adult life, I, at least this is what I gathered from the article, running brothels in Nevada. So he's a pimp. And he's running brothels in Nevada and running for political office. And just the other day, very abruptly, without warning, he died. And he, like, he died. And, and people were like, wait, he died. He's still on the ballot. They, they think he's still going to win the election. He's dead. And, and he died. The, and, but this is what I thought when I read that article. I thought, all right, this is a man who for the majority of his adult life has objectified women and encouraged them to practice prostitution and profited off of that. So not only has he um, you know, practiced these things, but he's also encouraged others to devote their lives to practice these things. And I cringed a little bit as I read this because I thought, okay, this man is now presented with the reality of his life gives no evidence whatsoever, obviously, of trusting in Jesus Christ. And now, he's in a context where the day for him to be accountable for that is here. And I, I cringed a little bit at the thought of what that man must now be realizing. And then as I'm thinking about this, particularly in light of this portion of Scripture... And I'm pondering this man's fate. I'm also thinking about the fact of my own fate and collectively our own fate. And left to myself, I was no better than that man when you look at what this portion of Scripture tells us. Because it says there's, effectively, it's saying there's no exception to this rule, right? That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God's. Meaning, I had no righteousness of my own that I could claim that would stand the test uh, in the courtroom of God. I couldn't come before God on my own and say, Lord, look at how righteous and how holy and how wonderful I was apart from you. Because that's not the case. My only hope, our only hope, remains the mercy of God that has been shown to us in Jesus Christ. That is our only hope. I cannot earn a righteous distinction in the eyes of God. I can't earn that. 
but I can receive righteousness as an undeserved gift of grace because that's precisely what Jesus Christ is offering us. And Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 3, verse 22, that without distinction, meaning, you know, without like distinction for your status or your background or whatever it may be, that the righteousness of God will be granted to anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. You, me, anyone who trusts in Christ will be granted the righteousness of Christ. Meaning, no matter how filthy your past or no matter how complicated your present may be, Jesus is willing to save you and make you righteous. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, we rejoice over the fact that He rescues us. We rejoice over the fact that He saves us. But do you also rejoice over the fact that He's made you righteous in His sight? Do you think it would make a difference for us to start seeing ourselves the way God sees us? If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you've been granted the righteousness of Christ as a gift. That means when you look at yourself in the mirror, you don't look at yourself self-righteously, but you should be able to remind yourself that the righteousness of Christ is something that's been granted to you. And that maybe, you know, in the flesh, we're not perfect, obviously. But in the eyes of God, the Father is seeing the presence of His Son within all who trust in Him. So whatever labels or ways that this world castigates you, this Scripture is true, that the righteousness of Christ is granted to everyone who trusts in Him. And that's something that we should be reminding ourselves of because it's true. But let's, let's ask this, let's kind of speak about this from like an investigative type of perspective or, or you know, let's even like, like, just for the sake of argument, throw in a little bit of skepticism on this. How certain is this salvation? How certain is this? You know, the Scripture speaking of these things. How certain is this salvation? Or maybe I could say it this way. What confirmation does the Lord give to us that confirms that we will no longer be condemned? On what basis is God no longer holding our sin against us? Or on what basis can we be certain that we are no longer under the wrath of God? Look at what the Scripture reveals to us. It reveals to us that Jesus alone can satisfy the righteous wrath of God, and that's exactly what Jesus did. Look at verse 25 and verse 26. It says this. It says, "...whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith." This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now let's pause there for just a second. When you picture the face of God, I want you to just picture what you would imagine the Lord to look like right now. When you picture the face of God, or even you know, just kind of picture what you think His face looks like as He observes humanity. So he's looking, you know, looking down on humanity, looking around at humanity. What does his face look like right now in his moment? What images come to mind? You picture him being completely stoic and maybe stone-faced? Is that kind of the image of God that we have in our mind? Or, or do you picture him maybe with a perpetual scowl? You know, do you think that that's how the Lord is looking at humanity? Or do you suppose God maybe is kind of moody or temperamental? 
or primarily in a state of irritation because of the unrighteousness of humanity? I think these are things that we naturally speaking wonder, but the truth is the perspectives that I just described there are faulty, but they're not uncommon in our imagination. Oftentimes, that's kind of how we think about God, or at least humanity at large tends to think about God. Now, when you look at God and what Scripture reveals to us about Him, Scripture tells us that God is perfectly holy and perfectly righteous. Sin is a violation of God's nature, so therefore He can't practice it, and He can't welcome it into His presence. Scripture describes those who are still lost in sin as being under God's wrath. If you're lost in sin, Scripture describes you as being in a state where you are under God's wrath. God's wrath is a serious thing, but the wrath of God should not be confused with moodiness or irritation because it's not the same thing. It's more consequential than that. And if a person enters eternity having rejected God's offer of forgiveness through Jesus Christ, they will then proceed to spend their eternity under God's wrath and apart from His love. The book of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says this, "...among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." That's our natural state. To be under the wrath of God, that's the natural state we find ourselves in. It says at one point we were all children of wrath like the rest of mankind, just following the passions of our, of our sinful nature. That was the direction that we always wanted to go. And that's what Scripture describes, the, the, the state of humanity apart from the intervention of Christ as being under the wrath of God. Now, I think when you look at humanity, just in general, not just speaking of believers here now, but humanity in general, I think that there are certain theological leanings that seem to be embedded in the hearts and in the minds and in the imaginations of humanity, even before we come to faith in Christ. And what I mean by that is this, one of, the, one of those leanings seems to be that if there, like this, it seems to be that if there's... Um, or let me phrase it like this. One of those leanings seems to be an understanding that if you believe there is such a thing as a God, that He would have wrath that needs to be appeased. That seems to be a, a, a theological leaning that, that people in general have this thought in regard to and I point that out because when you observe pagan religions that have been practiced throughout history or are currently practiced right now, many, if not most, of those pagan religions have historically made sacrifices to their false deities in the hope that they would satisfy the temperamental anger of those deities. In fact, you can see some of these things in some of the sacrifices that, um, that these pagan religions have made throughout history and even that they make now, trying to appease the temperamental moodiness of their false deities through sacrifice. But unfortunately, that, un that understanding is incomplete and it's unhelpful. But when you look back to the Old Testament era, so if you're reading through the Old Testament Scriptures, one of the things that you could see that the Jewish people were instructed by the Lord to do was to make sacrifices to God as acts of worship. 
And their sacrifices served as a temporary covenant, or covering for their sin that pointed to the fact that one day Jesus Christ was going to come and offer himself as the once and for all ultimate sacrifice for our sin. One example I'll just give to us real quickly from Leviticus 16, verse 15. This is speaking about the things that were to take place on the Day of Atonement. And there it says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So in Leviticus 16, verse 15, we're given an example of what that sacrificial system looked like, particularly on the Day of Atonement, things that that the priest was uh, instructed by the Lord to do in practicing these blood sacrifices. And by the way, whenever I look at things like this, and I've certainly said this before, I think to myself, I am much more grateful to be a pastor during this New Covenant era than a priest in the Old Covenant era. You know, the worst thing I got on my hands today was maybe a little bit of coffee because I filled my cup, you know, my cup too quickly back there. You know, and one time I had it in my left hand and somebody bumped my arm when I was greeting people and coffee went around, but that was it. That was the grossest it got, right? And when you look at these things, you know, I, I look at how the priest had to inspect houses for mold. Thank you for never inviting me over to your home to inspect for mold. Um, I'm grateful for that. Um, I'm grateful that we're not making blood sacrifices or doing anything like that. But during that era, they were required by the Lord to do so as a temporary covering for sin. Pointing to something that Jesus was one day going to do. But we, living in this new covenant era, we're blessed in a variety of ways. But one of the things that we're blessed with is the fact that we no longer offer animal sacrifices. Aren't you glad that that's the case, that we no longer have to do that? And the reason we no longer have to do that is because the sacrificial system ended when Jesus Christ was crucified on our behalf. He is the ultimate blood atonement for our sin. And as Paul speaks of him in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, he uses a word that I wonder if when we read it a few moments ago you were wondering about this word. But he uses a word, and I'm going to tell you this word for multiple reasons. Maybe it'll someday help you win Jeopardy, but that's not the main reason. The main reason is because I think this is a word that can prompt us to give praise to God for all that he's done on our behalf. And the word is propitiation. The scripture describes Jesus as being the propitiation for our sins. Well, what on earth does the word propitiation mean, and why does that matter? Like, what is the Apostle Paul talking about here as the Holy Spirit gave him these words to pen down for us to be able to read? Well, when Scripture speaks of Jesus as our propitiation, it's referring to the fact that he appeased or satisfied the righteous wrath of God that we were under because of our sinfulness. So Christ, being that ultimate sacrifice, he appeased, he satisfied the righteous wrath of God toward our sinfulness. And when Christ, you know, in satisfying the wrath of God, what he's done is he's reconciled us to God through faith in him. We were once an offense to our creator, but now we're loved and we're cherished as children who are no longer objects of his wrath. As we trust in Jesus Christ, through faith in Christ, We become objects of God's mercy and love. Now, I don't know about you, but I can testify that I am much more um, 
relieved or grateful or thankful, whatever word you want to use to know that theological truth, than to think that I would have to spend not only my present but all eternity as one who is under the wrath of God. I would not want to have to spend my days under God's wrath. And the Scripture tells us that we don't have to. We can become His objects of mercy, dearly loved children, as we trust in Jesus Christ, the one who is the propitiation for our sins, the one who is the ultimate sacrifice who appeases the righteous wrath of God. Now, I'm glad that God's patience isn't anything like my patience. I struggle with rushing to judgment. I struggle with being swift to punish. And when you look at Romans chapter 3, verse 25, what does that Scripture tell us? It tells us that God practiced forbearance toward us. He passed over our former sins while looking forward to the day when He was going to offer His Son to clean up the mess that we had made. He was patient with us because He knew how He was eventually going to justify us and how He was eventually going to remove His wrath from being upon us. And again, through faith in Jesus Christ, who is our propitiation, we are justified in God's eyes as if we had never sinned. Not a beautiful thing to meditate on. To think that, our, that God the Father would look at us as if we've never sinned. Through the propitiation of Jesus Christ, the satisfaction of the wrath of God. So I guess we should feel pretty good about ourselves then, right? Maybe like pat ourselves on the back a little bit, you know. Good job, everybody, in securing this blessing from God. Nice work. Right? Well, that's not the case. You know, this isn't a story where we get to be the heroes, right? We have nothing to boast about, the Scripture reveals to us, because in the end, we've been blessed in ways that we didn't deserve, and we didn't deserve any of these blessings. So as we finish up this morning, I just want to point out one other thing. I shouldn't be boasting about myself. We shouldn't be boasting about ourselves. Look at verse 27 down to the end of the chapter. Let me reread these verses really quickly. It says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. A couple of thoughts on this as we finish up, and maybe just a question that I want to ask related to this. Do you consider proud, boastful personalities to be endearing or revolting? tend to be revolting, right? My family enjoys watching football, and we watch as much football as we can reasonably fit into our schedule. And sometimes I fall asleep during football as well. It's also a great sport to take a nap to, which I feel a little bit guilty about while you've got people, you know, like destroying themselves on a field so I can nap to it. It's like at least watch, right? Um, but um, one of the, the things that we've noticed that really turns us off to certain players is when they're arrogant or boastful or people that, that brag. We find ourselves saying, oh, you know, I don't really like that guy. That guy just boasts and brags about himself so much. And in most contexts of life, I think all of us would probably say that we find the arrogance or the boasting of anyone in our life 
a revolting thing. It's not something that we find pleasant, and usually people that are very arrogant like that, we tend to keep a wide berth from if we can. We try and keep a distance from because it's unappealing to us. Um, And often when people are just kind of filled with their boastfulness or their arrogance, they speak in such a way as to actively put others down. But I bring that up because how often have we taken a boastful posture with God? You ever think about that? How often have we taken a boastful posture or a boastful stance with God? How often have we acted like His favor is something that we deserve? Right? How often have we bragged about, or you know, in speaking to Him, bragged about the service that we've done for Him? Or how many times have we complained to Him that, that He wasn't being good to us anymore because we resented the fact that He dared to allow us to go through a season of, of adversity or trial. Right? Do you, ever, do you ever just find yourself saying, Lord, you're just not being good to me anymore. I deserved more than this. I shouldn't be going through this adversity or this trial. Why are you doing this? Is that not a form of boasting? It's like, really? You're the one person that Romans 3.23 doesn't apply to? You're the one person, maybe you should be the Messiah, right? If you're the one sinless person, you know, that, that somehow has not rebelled against God. But there's nothing we can accurately boast about before God. Nothing. We have no boast before Him. We can't boast about our ability to keep the law because we failed at that. We can't boast about our ability to exhibit the fruit of the Holy Spirit because We can only exhibit that fruit as He empowers us to exhibit that fruit. And both Jews and Gentiles, the Apostle Paul is making clear in this passage, both Jews and Gentiles can claim only one thing. And that one thing is this, we are freely and undeservedly justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This faith did not negate the Old Testament law, it showed it to be effective because that law was like a sheepdog. And what was it doing? It was trying to point out to the, the, that we had a need and drive us toward Christ. The whole time it was trying to drive us toward Jesus. And in, so, you know, and in being driven toward Christ after we recognize our need for Him, you have the Old Testament law fulfilling its purpose. So does God have something against you? In light of this Scripture, does God have something against you? I guess we could say, you know, if you're still rejecting Him and choosing to remain under His wrath, then I guess the answer would be yes. I would hope that that would not be a decision you would persist in, because remaining under the wrath of God is not the best place to remain. But even though we've all fallen short of the standard of God the Scripture reveals to us, He still offers Himself to us. Jesus our propitiation has satisfied the righteous wrath of God against sin. And He will reconcile us to God if we trust in Him. He will transform our boastful, hard hearts into humble, grateful hearts. And the Holy Spirit will then perpetually remind us that God is for us, not against us. When we become objects of His mercy instead of objects of His wrath, again, the Holy Spirit testifies to our hearts that God is for us and not against us. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for the privilege to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this today and to recognize what you're communicating in it. Lord, again, we know that by nature we were objects of wrath. Our minds, our hearts, our actions, these things were all dead set against you. We were going our own direction. We were rebelling against you in every way. And we didn't feel too bad about that either. That was something that we just kind of accepted as the reality of life, and we just went through life ignoring you. And then as we look at what your word states, your word reveals to us our lost condition apart from you. And your word makes it abundantly clear that your wrath is a real thing, and we were under it. And Lord, I don't know the hearts of us, everyone gathered here in this room today, you know our hearts, so it very well may be that there are some of us in this room who are still under your wrath because we've just persisted throughout the course of our lives to reject you and to reject your offer of salvation through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. But Lord, it's not your desire that we persist in that rejection. It's not your desire that we would go throughout our earthly life and our everlasting uh, existence under your wrath. That's not something you want for us. If you wanted that for us, we had that already, you wouldn't have intervened on our behalf, but because you don't want that for us, you intervened. You sent your Son into this world to be the propitiation for our sins, so that the punishment that we deserved could go upon Him instead of being something that remained on us. The condemnation that we deserved would be placed upon your Son, Jesus Christ, so it wouldn't remain on us. You gave us pictures of what that would look like through the Old Testament sacrificial system, but that system's done now. That system found its completion. That system found its fulfillment in your Son. So, Lord, we're grateful. And I know, Lord, from reading your word, that it was painful for this, to, this transaction to take place. But I'm grateful, Lord, we're grateful that you were willing to not only place the wrath that we deserved upon your Son, but you offer us the privilege to be reconciled through faith in your Son. So, Lord, it's not our desire to spend today or any day distant from you anymore. Lord, we don't want to go through our life with this idea that that you have something against us. We know that that was the natural state that we were in, and we deserved it. But, Lord, again, you've remedied that. And so we pray, Lord, that we would accept the fact that that you've remedied that, that we would trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would receive the forgiveness that we have through Christ. And afterward, Lord, we pray that we would be reminded of this truth, that you are for us and not against us. We pray that we would be reminded of the fact that you supernaturally make us righteous in your sight, even though we had no righteousness of our own. You give us the righteousness of your Son. And now as we stand before you, we do so as men and women who are no longer condemned. So again, Lord, this is the type of thing we know that you can work out in our minds and in our hearts. And likewise, Lord, this is the type of thing that you want us to practice as an ongoing thing, to not go through life preaching a message of condemnation to our hearts after we've already been rescued and redeemed through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. We are no longer condemned if we've trusted in Jesus. We are no longer under your wrath. We are objects of your mercy, objects of your love, welcomed into your eternal presence. And Lord, we pray that by your grace that we would start to accurately begin to see ourselves 
from your perspective, with your eyes, with the kind of clarity that you give to us as we understand the truth of your gospel and what it means. So thank you, Lord, for these reminders. Lord, even if this was a portion of Scripture that we were well familiar with, thank you for bringing it to our attention today. And Lord, even if this is a portion of Scripture that we've never heard of before, thank you, Lord, for bringing it to our attention today. And Lord, as we continue to study throughout the book of Romans and going chapter by chapter, looking at the verses that you've explained to us and revealed to us, we pray, Lord, that our understanding of the new life that you've given to us in Christ would grow. And that as we understand it, that we would begin to appreciate it more and more. Lord, we appreciate you and we're grateful for your blessings. We're grateful for your presence here with us today as well. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.